0: Listening to the Pro Bono Happy Hour, I'm Rena Glazer. Welcome back. Today's guest is George Kendall from Squire Patton Boggs. George called in from New York City, where he is based, and we discussed his pioneering career as a criminal rights and death penalty defense lawyer. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Hi, George. Thanks for joining us on the Pro Bono Happy Hour. Welcome.
1: I'm happy to be here.
0: Let's jump right in. To begin, could you tell us about yourself and your background?
1: I've been a lawyer for 37 years. Um, For the first 24, I was focused entirely on public interest work in the public interest world. Uh, I spent uh, four years with a great young young law firm in D.C. doing a lot of court-appointed work. I then went with the ACLU. Uh, for five years to work in Atlanta at their capital punishment project for the 11th Circuit States. Uh, I spent the next 15 years at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund working mostly on capital habeas cases, um, also monitoring uh, Congress's review of habeas corpus, and working on um, Supreme Court cases uh, that the court heard throughout all those years. Um, In 2003, for the last 13 years, I have basically done the same kind of work uh, in the private sector uh, for six years at one firm. And for the past seven years, I've directed a special pro bono project called the Public Service Initiative at Squire Patent Box.
0: Great. And we will circle back and drill down into more of that. But as someone who grew up in an 11th Circuit state and clerked on the 11th Circuit, I'm happy to hear about your experience in Atlanta. Was there a light bulb moment for you growing up that drew you to the public interest?
1: What drew me to public interest was um, in my last year of college, I saw too many of my friends going off to Finishing school, whether it be medical school or or law school or whatever, and they had no idea really what those professions were. And sort of at the last minute, I hit the pause button and uh, went into Vista, the, um, uh, the the Domestic Peace Corps, and uh, I said, "Put me where you need me." And I wound up at a project run by an ex-con in Connecticut and we did two things there was a bail project to make sure uh, people facing um not serious charges got bail and a uh, another volunteer who i met there David Hoost had that part of the job who i'm still in touch with and doing cases with all these years later and then i was assigned to the reentry part of the project uh, i would visit area prisons and take men and women Um, who were within 60 days of their – of being released on parole, I would take them out to find housing, find jobs, and so that we could – they could reenter society with some hope of succeeding. And it was really that experience and getting to know these men and women. women. One of the common stories was how their lawyers had not represented them ably. And I thought, well – If I really work hard, I can do better than a lot of those lawyers. And so that helped me uh, focus uh, what I wanted to do. So when I went to law school, I really had a sense of what I wanted to do. And and that's a great help. I urge um, younger people coming out of college um, to not rush uh, to go to law school because I think all of my classmates who had taken some time off the law school experience was, I would say enjoyable, but it was a lot less anxiety prone because of that time away.
0: I think that's great advice, especially with the economics of law school today. And now that's changed as well in terms of people solidifying their interests. And we talk a lot about pro bono being where passion meets purpose. And I think that that echoes a lot of what you're talking about. So how did your journey bring you to Squire Patton Boggs?
1: I had been at a at a former firm where I, w- where I was uh, working in a pro bono, uh, full time pro bono job, and then um, uh, some attorneys here uh, reached out and said, "Look, we want to start a project um, that's dedicated the way they called it to the dark side." Um, and this came at an unusual time. This came in 2009 when I think a lot of law firms were thinking that Western civilization was collapsing. And so at a time when the, the legal profession was really contracting and it was very painful, many painful things were going on, uh, Squire uh, decided to um, boost its pro bono in a very significant way. And so the, we started this project uh, in September of 2009. So we're, we'll, we're starting our eighth year next month. Uh, four lawyers came in. Um, I was full-time pro bono. My three associates were about 70% pro bono and 30% commercial, and we, from the day we walked in and to the present time, had a full docket of very demanding cases, uh, death cases in the South, innocence cases all over the place, uh, prison cases. And we've branched out a little bit, we've gotten involved in some police media relations cases. And and we've been doing that work uh, ever since here uh, at, at Squire with uh, great support from the firm.
0: So generally, I think this program is called the Public Service Initiative? Correct. And could you tell us a little bit more about how it operates? And you spoke a little bit about the types of matters you handle. How does it function?
1: yes we you know there's an ongoing pro bono program at squire uh what our project does is we can um we can take on cases that we know are going to take years and years uh to resolve um and we have the full support of the firm to do so we work with associates from uh, all over the firm um um, uh, someone will call me up on a regular basis and say, look, I've got 50 hours. I've got 100 hours. I'd like to get involved in one of these cases. Fine. And we put them to work. And what we like to say to the partners who they're returning to, would will return them better advocates, better lawyers. Um, we also, in some of these cases, they are big and demanding. We partner with other law firms, some small, some large. Um, I'm sure what you have seen this, but there is – At least in my time in reaching out to um, law firms to take on major pro bono matters, there's, in some places, a great reluctance to do so because of the lack of, of expertise in some of these areas. and. Uh, a lot of the firms are just not willing to put the time, the startup time, the learning time in the way they were 20, 25 years ago. And so we have found that by um, approaching other firms and saying, look, let's not do this individually, let's do this together, that oftentimes can uh, can bring other firms into very, very important work. Uh, we also have a communications function, and, and part of our work that we do as lawyers is consulting with um, overwhelmed, underfunded uh, public defenders and private lawyers who've been appointed into our big cases, death cases, and instance cases. Um, I think I alone probably spend, I probably spend four or 500 hours a year just in consulting, it's probably more than that. And we teach, we go around the country and and teach at some of the uh, training programs. I'm going to Washington this Friday to give two talks to a couple thousand habeas corpus lawyers. Um, We also have a communications function. We host uh, Laura Burstein, who's one of the preeminent communication uh, specialists in the country in our Washington, D.C. office, and her entire focus is to aid lawyers who have cases either in the Supreme Court or to other important uh, junctures with Media needs and demands, which are are oftentimes very large, and so we have we like to think of ourselves as a hybrid project uh, in that we do direct litigation um, we do com- we provide communications work, um, we provide consulting services, we're involved in um, public policy matters. Uh, we have long been working on trying to see improvement and more independence for the indigent defense community, both in the states and in the uh, the feds. Um, I've long been associated with the administrative office of the court on several projects to see that capital representation uh, in federal cases is what it needs to be. And so uh, that's, that's basically what we do.
0: So you mentioned the public defenders. What other sources do you have for clients and matters?
1: We get... Um, There are a variety of sources for us. Um, There are colleagues I've known for years who will call up and say, can you take this case? Uh, There are um, clients or potential clients who write, I get uh, the public service initiative here probably gets 20 letters easily a month uh, from prisoners or uh, prisoner family members requesting that we take cases. I've had judges call, Um, I've had other lawyers call to say, look, I can't take this case, but this sounds like something you guys could do a terrific job with. Um, So there are all kinds of ways that we hear about cases. Um, Obviously we say no to most of those cases, but uh, when we can, we try to find other uh, lawyers. Uh, I was recently contacted by colleagues in Texas who we're desperate to find uh, counsel for a case, um, and um, I'm, I believe um, we were able to do so. Uh, I'll know in a couple of weeks, but I think that a a very good and dedicated law firm is going to come in and jump into that case. So we do some of that.
0: Let's pivot a little bit and talk about one area in which you've been particularly active, juvenile life without parole cases. Could you provide an overview of your involvement and the current lay of the land?
1: That area of the law has has really uh, been transformed dramatically by three Supreme Court decisions: Uh, Graham versus Florida, Miller versus Alabama, and just this past term, Montgomery versus Louisiana. Uh, Brian Stevenson and his great organization, the Equal Justice Initiative, um, they. Brought this litigation, and they were counsel of record in both the Graham case and the Miller case. And they asked us to uh, coordinate all the amicus work in both Graham and in Miller, and we did. We actually we also filed a brief on behalf of a of a large number of uh, of juvenile corrections officials in the Graham case and we um uh, organized mooting and helped Brian Stevenson get ready for the argument in in both those cases of which he did a terrific job um when the court uh granted a review this past term in Montgomery to decide whether miller would apply retroactively and that meant to over 2000 um other cases pending all over the country um The lawyer, the case of record in that case, uh, asked us to work with him, and we did the same thing. We coordinated all the amicus briefing, and because he had not argued in the court before, he asked us to help him with moots, and so we scheduled a few more moots than we usually do and worked very closely uh, getting him ready. Um, uh, We were all helped in that case when the Department of Justice, for the first time in my memory, Um, formally came in on the side of the prisoner, in that case, uh, Mr. Montgomery, and um, um, took part of the argument in the case, which is also quite helpful. Uh, And so we were very involved in those three cases. And um, happily for, I think, um, as America looks back on those cases, um, I think that whoever disagreed with those decisions when they came down. I think there will be fewer and fewer as time goes by. Those decisions were correctly decided and they're gonna bring a measure of justice as was much necessary.
0: Could you generally explain the the holding and sort of where we were and where we are are now in terms of juvenile sentencing?
1: You know, in the in up until just the last four or five years we had become one of the most punitive countries when it comes to criminal sanctions. Of so anywhere in the world, I think a lot of Americans fail to appreciate that. Um, you know, recently we've done um, a number of cases in Louisiana. I think Louisiana has, uh, if not the highest, one of the highest incarceration rates in the world. And and everyone sort of got caught up in this. It was not just uh, that we have to either execute or, or lock away forever violent offenders, but our our, our prison populations exploded from 1980, uh, uh, to frankly, now they're just beginning to show some signs of, 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 of fewer people in prison in, in states, not everywhere, but in, in, uh, in a growing number of states. And, um, I think, and so, and juveniles were caught up in this as well. Um, you know, no other, no former generation of Americans built prisons for people to die in. Uh, you go back 30 or 40 years, uh, you rarely saw um, um, ancient people in prison, and now uh, you go into some maximum security prisons in this country, and they and s- some of the tears will remind you of a nursing home, is that you won't see anybody uh, younger than 60 years old. And, and when you're 60 in prison, that's like 70, 75 uh, uh, elsewhere. Um, and juveniles got caught up in this world, but Mr. Montgomery is a very good example. He had been convicted in the early 1960s, and so he had spent more than 50 years in prison. And I think what the effect of Graham and Miller and Montgomery is going are going to be is that we're going to see a ratcheting back some of um, surely the only juveniles who are going to wind up spending. Um, um, all their lives or most of their lives in prison are going to be a very, very small number who not only were found guilty of a horrific crime, but also never found a way to adjust and live peacefully in prison. Um, hopefully, as we move forward, um, this there is a difference between somebody who's 16 and somebody who's 35 who commit the same crime. Uh, but Uh, In the last 20 years, we've been living in a legal system where oftentimes it was the juvenile uh, who committed the murder at age 16 who would spend decades longer in prison than the adult, uh, the fully mature adult, who committed the same crime at age 35.
0: And I I think that bottom line surprises people. I'm not sure people know that that, that's been the lay of the land. Um, Do you have any other recent victories that you'd like to report or share?
1: You know we are happy. We've had we've had uh, uh, some some good successes. We've had uh, four death penalty cases, which um, uh, when we got them, they our clients were on death row. All now are off of death row. Um, we've had two men who were in solitary confinement for more than four decades in Louisiana, uh, Herman Wallace and Albert Woodfox, who um, also had been wrongly convicted of the murder of a of a correctional officer in Louisiana, uh, we won full habeas corpus relief for both of them. Both were released. Unfortunately, Mr. Wallace was dying of liver cancer, and he was only alive for three days after his release until he passed. But Albert Woodfox was released um, in um, February, and he is adjusting um, uh, better and better to this outside world um, so we're we're quite pleased about that. Um also there was a civil suit challenging their long um time in solitary confinement that uh, has concluded under favorable terms. Um and so that was a long fought battle that we are happy about. Gary Tyler who was a a juvenile, he was the youngest person on death row in the 1970s whose death sentence was overturned in the late 70s, but uh, was going to die in, in prison in Louisiana uh, until Miller and Montgomery came down. Uh, I'm happy to report that he was released from prison in late April. And he here was a guy who went to a very, very tough prison for anybody, adults, whoever, when he was 16 or 17 years old. And he found a way to live a life, a purposeful life that helped many other people and he is, uh he has continued that in the outside world uh he really is he's he's just got a job this week where he'll be working with young people uh who are who are being released back to society to help them with that journey so um we've got a couple of innocence cases that we're very hopeful for in the very near future. We're waiting for a ruling from a federal judge in in Virginia on one. Um, and so uh, we've had some real success and we're looking forward to more in the in the future.
0: Your client story is really inspiring. And maybe it's the answer to my next question, which is, this is such tough stuff that you're dealing with. How do you keep your spirits up?
1: Our clients, without exception, are deeply grateful for um, our work on their behalf. Uh, those who have families, those families um, are grateful. And when you... You know, I had a trial, a, a retrial in a capital case in Florida two years ago, and uh, our client had been death sentenced 30 years ago, and had spent the the 30 years on death row in Florida in 23-hour day lockdown. That's the modern day equivalency to solitary confinement. He literally grown up. He was 18 years old when he wound up on death row. Um, needless to say, his mother was. Um, distraught about the fact that her son, who had been terribly, terribly abused and mistreated throughout his childhood, was going to wind up executed. And there are few moments in a lawyer's life that is more rewarding than after we tried that case, after that jury came back and recommended life sentences, and after the judge accepted that recommendation and opposed the life sentence, to be able to look at Richard's mother in the eye and say, you're never going to have to worry about your son being executed again. That was an extraordinary moment. And we've had other moments like that, which are, you know, when I talk to lawyers, you know, I'm in my early 60s now, but when I talk to lawyers who are older than I, um, lawyers who have had amazing careers doing all kinds of stuff, uh, it's not surprising that when, they, when you ask them what's the most Satisfaction you got out of your uh, your practice, the practice of law. Um, it's been surprising to me that uh, some will say some of the work they did on their big pan cases, but uh, I think a majority have said they always come back to some case they did pro bono. And um, I know that when I sort of hang the bar card up, um, I'm going to reflect back on some of these moments. I've lost clients to execution. I know what that's like. I know what that's like for the families of, the, of my clients. It's it's horrific. And I know that when I look back that I'm going to remember these these times of being able to go to the um, my client's families and sometimes even the victim's families and say, look, it's over. You're not going to have to be dragged to court again. You're not going to have to be wondering about when you open the paper next month, there's going to be some major decision in the case where your son or daughter was murdered and no one picked up the phone to give you any warning about that. So,
0: Yeah, it's saving lives and fighting for justice. Um, we touched on this earlier, George opinions, both popular and political, seem to have evolved regarding our approach to criminal justice, mass incarceration, and even the death penalty. Do you see this as a genuine sea change in this country? Um, And if so, to what do you attribute any change in attitudes?
1: You know, I think uh, we, we had all this confidence about what a great system we had, back in the uh, 80s and 90s, and if there was a mantra for the policy changes we saw, it was meaner, tougher, harsher, longer, About most policy changes went in those directions. Um, criminal sanctions got tougher, um, procedures got more demanding uh, for people facing uh, criminal charge to um, access their rights. Um, it, was, it was pretty grim. Um, I think what's happened is um, with, with regard to, say, the death penalty, while there's great enthusiasm for the death penalty in a lot lot of parts of the country 10 years ago, I can't find any enthusiasm anymore. I think all of the innocence cases have really shaken the confidence of, of anyone who's thoughtful in this country that uh, while we do have – when you compare our system to a lot of other places, it's a there's a lot to admire about it. But it is a lot more fallible than I think most people would have admitted 10 years ago. And to that we owe the extraordinary work of the Innocence Project in teaching us that lesson again and again and again. I think what oftentimes people, don't, people fail to realize in these innocence cases is that many of those cases were not, a, were not cases where sort of the retired detectives on Friday afternoon would come in and investigate the case. These were cases that were the highest priority in the office. They were the ones where all the crack police officers worked them. And still we found out 10 or 15, 20 years later that they got the wrong guy or they got the wrong guys. And I can tell you some of the, I've, I've sat and talked to, I mean, there was one prosecutor, one of the most toughest prosecutors I think I've ever met. And, um I wouldn't have believed this unless I saw it with my own eyes, but I I, I was in a room where she said to Barry Shack, one of the co-directors of the project, boy, I've learned a lot from your cases. So I think that's one thing. I think another thing is that we have life without parole now, um, in most jurisdictions. And that again, there most countries in on the face of the earth don't use that sentence either. Um, and so, um, Jurors now can can leave a courthouse not worried about somebody being released anytime soon if they reject the death penalty and post-life prosecutors know that. So these cases are very costly. Um, And so there there are a good number of reasons why we've seen this dramatic um, lessening of the number of people who are uh, being charged capitally, and who are being actually dead the, the The difference between now and 10 years ago is literally night and day. Are you
0: optimistic, pessimistic, or somewhere in between?
1: I think this. I think the world, if you look at, at what's going on in the world, I think that uh, we took a sharp turn toward just becoming very punitive um, in a lot of areas in criminal justice, which the rest of the world did not follow us on. And I think that we are beginning to walk that back uh, in a lot of ways. Um, I think that ten years ago, had the president been commuting the number of sentences that uh, that President Obama is and will continue to do, there would have been an outcry. There's going to be virtually no outcry. In fact, I think there are going to be people saying he ought to be doing more, not not as not just the number he's doing. Um, I think people see we need a real re. Recalibrating of of the system, and um, there surely are signs that the death penalty now is up for um, uh, review. Um, last week, or two weeks ago, the Delaware Supreme Court struck down the death penalty uh, in a very strong opinion. Um, you know, the Supreme Court struck down Florida's death penalty that way back in January, and the There have been like 20 cases up in the Florida Supreme Court pending for months now about how that decision is going to apply. I think the Supreme Court is sending signals that Alabama's got real problems with its capital statute. And I would not be surprised if this term the court takes a case uh, to answer that question. Uh, These were not things the courts were doing 10 years ago. So I think that we're going to learn in the next three or four years. Uh, Whether or not the death penalty will continue to play some role in our country, I think that if the court takes a case and and takes a hard look at this, um, an honest look back over the last 40 years of the administration of the death penalty in this country, it's not a proud one for our country. And um, while the Constitution, when written, said it is allowable, uh, there's nothing in the Constitution that says we can't um, abandon it and move on.
0: What issues or projects are next on the horizon for you and the Public Service Initiative?
1: We well, you know, we're going to continue to do what we have been doing because there's just, there's just an extraordinary unmet need for legal services in these very demanding cases. If we wanted to quadruple our dockets by 5 o'clock today, it'd be easy to do so. Um, But we are also going to branch out a little bit. I think that one other thing that we have learned um, in really going into the prisons and talking to our clients and other people there is um, there's a real need for um, corporate America uh, to come in and help. Um, Just like private law firms have an obligation, as Justice Kennedy reminded us, last year in the context of solitary confinement, we can't look away. We've got to, It's up to lawyers to take on some of the stuff and, and, and bring it to the courts. I think the last 30 years um, of relationship between Department of Corrections and, and some American corporations have not been proud ones. Uh, the most expensive phone call in America for far too long has been between a son and his mother on Mother's Day. Um, these are some of the most expensive calls uh, in the world, and that's outrageous. Uh, I had a client who was arrested for being basically the abused girlfriend of a drug dealer. She was pregnant. She gave birth manacled to a hospital bed. Her parents, middle-class parents, uh, who had worked very hard their entire lives, they were determined that their daughter and her son would speak every day. They had to file for bankruptcy not once but twice because the phone bills were extraordinary. Um, that's not a proud history. And so I hope to, we hoped in the public service initiative, see if we can invite some and put together some uh, of corporate America that believes it has an obligation to come in and help and not exploit, uh, to uh, make the missions of our prisons um, um, accessible. And so that when people are uh, shown the door and said it's time for you to go home, they're going to be better prepared to walk out that door and rejoin society in a positive way.
0: Yeah, I think reentry, which is a big project that PBI has taken on, is really um percolated to our minds that um, we have this population and we need to, you know, make sure that we're not encouraging recidivism, because where does that get us? So.
1: Well, these are not leper colonies. <laughs> yep. uh, most of the people there come home, and it's in our interest to see that they do so in a way where they're prepared to, they've paid their debt, and to move on in positive ways. Yep.
0: Um You've taught at several law schools, and we talked about this earlier. But what other advice could you share for law students or young in their career lawyers?
1: I think a law, every lawyer in America has an obligation to not look the other way, um, regardless of what one does. If you go to a big firm and you become partner, then in some ways you have a you have reaped the the, the greatest rewards from uh, an extraordinary system. Well, you have an obligation to help, um, you will have classmates who chose very different paths, uh, who might have spent their entire careers working and not-for-profits don't pay very much. It's, it's time for you to make sure those not-for-profits have more resources. But I think for individual students coming out in young lawyers, might, I think, take something that's important to you and, and make it a priority. I mean, you've got to pay the bills. You've got to do your, real, your regular work, but um, spend some time trying to lessen a problem. Uh, find other people who believe the same thing you do and work with them. And if you stick at it, uh, you're going to lessen that problem, and that will be a wonderful thing. Lawyers can play an amazing role in our society if they simply choose to do so.
0: Well, that's a very inspiring note for us to end on. Thank you so much for talking with me today. It was an honor and my pleasure.
1: Thank you for the invitation.
0: Thanks for listening to our discussion with George Kendall. And special thanks to George for telling us about his inspiring career and his fights against injustice and inequality in the criminal justice system. To learn more about the Pro Bono Institute, visit our website at probonoinst.org. Additional episodes of the Pro Bono Happy Hour can be found on iTunes and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already and take a moment to leave a review. We'd appreciate the feedback and it would help make it easier for other listeners to find the program and expand the conversation about pro bono and access to justice. Want to learn more about the world of in-house pro bono? check out the PBI Podcast Network's new feed. It's called CLO and Pro Bono Series. CLO stands for Chief Legal Officer. The program explores the world of in-house pro bono at corporate legal departments. Links to the program can be found on our website. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time on the Pro Bono Happy Hour.